All right, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Well, we always like to start out, and I've already met a, a, a couple today, but if this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, whether you're here in our room or if you're joining us online, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and before we get into our intro, I do want to take just a quick moment to say thank you to all of the men and women here in our church and around the world that have served in the armed forces. We, yeah. My dad was a, a veteran, uh, served in the Vietnam War, and I've always had great respect for those uh, that serve. I myself had wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force, and then God was like, nah, I got other plans for you. And I was like, all right, Lord. So, but uh, thank you so much. We, we, we greatly honor those of you that have served, that are serving, um, and have put your life on the line to defend our country and our freedoms. And and so we say thank you, we honor you, and I just want to pray for you right now before we get started. So if everybody, if you'll join me in prayer. Father, we pray, God, for the veterans here in our room and, and online and, and just all over, Lord. We pray for them, that you would bless them, God. We are so grateful that you put a call on their heart to serve in our military, God, to defend the freedoms that we hold dear here in, the, in America, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless them and their families, God. We pray for those that may still be dealing with some of the difficulties of their service, God, that you would bring healing and hope and wholeness. But God, we pray, Lord, that you would just bless their lives abundantly, that they would know you, they would know your presence, and that they would know the blessing, God, of who you are in their lives. May they truly understand how much we love them and thank them for their service, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we are continuing our study of Revelation chapter 17, looking at Babylon. But Babylon in the perspective of its representation as the one world religion. Now, last time we, we went, we looked at the first six verses of Revelation chapter 17 here, at the vision that was given to John. And today we're going to be looking at the interpretation of that vision as the angel interprets what John saw. If you remember at the end of chapter 16, which was the conclusion of the seventh bowl of wrath, that brought us to the chronological conclusion of the seven-year tribulation period. That seventh bowl being the, 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 the final judgment of God on earth at the end of tribulation. And I mentioned then that the actual chronology of the story will pick back up in chapter 19. And so we'll pick the story back up there. But Revelation 17 and 18 are a pause in the action, as John has done a couple times already in Revelation, to look back on what we just went through and to take a look at something in more detail. Ultimately, what we're looking at in chapter 17 and 18 is what is being judged through the close of tribulation. And that is namely Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great, which represents the entirety of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is expressed in the end times in a one-world government, a one-world socioeconomic system that stands against God and against his people. But Babylon the Great also represents this one-world religious system that itself represents man's humanistic attempt at elevating itself, its own values, its own priorities above and instead of God. 
And so Babylon, this concept, this idea of Babylon represents everything that stands in opposition to Jesus Christ. Everything that stands against him. Every thought, every philosophy, every practice, everything that would stand against Jesus, both religious and political. Now in Revelation 17, what we've been seeing is the religious embodiment of this idea of Babylon as seen by John the Apostle and characterized as a notorious prostitute. This notorious prostitute characterizing a system of false religion, false worship, unfaithfulness to the true God. And as we looked at that in our last study, we saw the representation pointing out the spiritual immorality, the the idea of adultery and fornication committed against God in false worship, against the one true creator, God Almighty, who is the only one worthy of worship and our everything. And so this system we've been studying is pictured as being in control of and having influence over all peoples, cultures, and religions of the world. As we saw in our previous study, this system is initially supported, this one world religious system is initially supported and elevated by and even has influence over the Antichrist and the government he leads. This system in the early days of the tribulation period manages to bring all the people of the world together and by people it's specifically contextually pointing out all the different faiths and religions and expressions of spirituality somehow brings them together, uniting them in the rejection of Jesus Christ and the persecution of those who believe in him. And this reality, it says, astonished John the Apostle in its blatant hypocritical brutality. Well, today what we're going to be looking at is the angel, as I said, showing John what this vision means, showing him the interpretation of what John saw, providing him and us with some clarity of, of, as to how this all comes to be in the, in the ultimate judgment of this one world religious system, how it all comes to be, what it all leads to, and really how the man-centered, self-exalting expression of religion and power ultimately destroys itself. And that is the picture of being fully defeated and judged by the true Lord of Lords and the true King of Kings. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, but as we do is we're going to first be uh, celebrating uh, God in worship and praising Him. We're also celebrating today at the end of our service a baptism. We have a number of people getting baptized today And, you know, baptism being a public expression of faith requires a public to express that faith too. And you all get to be the public today to celebrate with our brothers and sisters making that expression. But let's pray, and we'll get into our time of worship. Father, we love you so much. God, we're so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for what you've done. And we're so thankful for what you're going to do. Lord, we know as we've been looking at Revelation, God, that that really bad times are coming upon the earth. Lord, that you will one day, and hopefully soon, Lord, judge all the false religion and false faith that man has propped up. All of the false gods that, that man has lifted up, whether it was under the inspiration of Satan himself or due to his own fallen nature, Lord, Even the worship of himself, Lord, man has tried to to find this, this spiritual expression in everything but worshiping you, the one true God.
And Lord, we know that today we are in a, in a time of patience, Lord, where you are just patiently waiting for those that are going to be saved before you take your church out of this world to get saved. But Lord, we're looking at today, God, what you're going to do in the end to finally and fully deal with false worship, idolatry. And so God, encourage us, Lord. Encourage us as you have been to be people who are aware of what's coming, that we would be people who warn those today about the judgment to come. To share with them the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the one true God who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. That we would share, Lord, that through faith in what you did, we can be restored, our, our, our fellowship can be restored with you, our creator. And God, we pray for those getting baptized today, Lord. What a blessing. May they be, may they be greatly blessed today as they, as they make this public profession, Lord, proclaiming that they have eschewed all false religions and now believe in the one and true almighty God. Lord, we're so grateful. We want to praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to open up with looking at Revelation 17, chapter 17, verse 1 again, just as a context where we're at. It told us there, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, said, come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. And so that told us right in the very beginning of Revelation 17 um, that what John was witnessing, what, what the angel was about to show him was very specifically the judgment of what we know is this notorious prostitute that represents the false religious system and then kind of in a, in a broader scope, false religion in general. God is judging that. And we know that God is going to judge that one day. And really it's just, a, a, um, you know, since the very beginning of, of time with man, the very beginning of, of man's existence, the sin of man has been believing the lie that they don't need God or his ways. That, that, that is the original problem. They, the idea that, that from the very beginning man has thought, you know, we can have wisdom on our own and we could have knowledge of good and evil and, and we can be like God Without God, or specifically without his ways, that was the temptation in the garden all the way back in the beginning, and it has been man's problem ever since. As we follow the chronology through the Bible, we see almost right away Cain tried to approach God on his own terms, and we read that God rejected his, his offering because it was on Cain's own terms and not on God's own terms. Well, that made Cain so angry that he went and he killed his brother Abel, Specifically because Abel's offering was accepted by God because Abel brought an offering on God's terms. But Cain was so upset about that, he murdered his brother. And then we touched on last week a little bit that after the flood, a man named Nimrod, the hunter, led a rebellion against God, again attempting to be spiritual or attempting to lead man in being spiritual on man's own terms instead of God's terms. And that's what we've seen throughout history over and over again. Man has been deceived, duped, used by Satan to create false religion after false religion over and over and over in an attempt to satisfy what the Bible really teaches is man's innate desire 
to worship something, somehow, some way, and Satan's desire to do everything he can to be worshiped instead of God. And then what I also believe is that Satan's desire is just to cause pain and hurt to God Almighty in any way he can. So from the beginning until now, Satan has largely been temporarily satisfied with man worshiping anything but God, right? Worship Allah. Worship Buddha. Worship Krishna. Worship one of the thousand gods of Hinduism. Worship anything but the one true God. And Satan has been okay with that. But in the end times, we've been studying in Revelation that the time is going to come where Satan eventually is going to step out of the shadows and step into the spotlight. And he's going to crush all of that through his puppet, the Antichrist, and then demand to be worshipped alone as God. Where he's going to step onto the scene and demand, I am God, worship me, and he's going to do that through the Antichrist. But regardless, this anything but God mentality, this we don't need God in his ways mentality is going to be judged and ruined and dealt with finally once and for all. This is what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now again, the first six verses of Revelation 17, John was allowed to see what is really a picture of the seductive, alluring, tempting character of false worship in all of its detestable and impure glory. And in verse 6, it told us that John was astonished by what he saw. Specifically, he was astonished, amazed at what false worship leads mankind to do in its brutal, violent stand against the one true God and his people. And so we pick it up in verse 7 of Revelation 17. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. So this beast is referring to the beast that the woman is sitting on. We read that earlier in Revelation 17, that this woman is sitting on a beast. Specifically, verse 3, it said, John says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And so the beast here in verse 7, where he says, I'm going to explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast, it's that beast Now, this was also in reference to the beast that was introduced to us in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation because it's almost the exact same description we read there back in chapter 13. But the focus you might catch catch on to as we go through this, the focus of the interpretation of this vision is still primarily on the beast, even though we're talking about this notorious prostitute. So although this notorious prostitute is sitting on the beast, it says, and that word sitting is indicating some type of influence or control over, the beast is still the dynamic factor in the whole story. The beast is still the main actor, if you will. And so as we're going to see, this beast, which I believe represents both the Antichrist as an individual and it represents the one world government that he leads, the system of government that he leads, is ultimately using the notorious prostitute, using this system of false worship as a mere tool to accomplish its own ends and its own means. And really, if we look down through history, we've seen tyrants 
have always used religion as a means to um, gain their own influence and control. Tyrants have always used religion when it suits their aims, and it's really no different here at the end of time. So much that this angel says here in this interpretation connects this beast to the beast of Revelation 13. We're going to deal specifically with the seven heads and the ten horns in a moment, but we're going to move on to verse 8 first. It says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. So twice there it gives us this weird phrase about the beast, right? The beast that was and is not and is about to come. And specifically it opens up there, about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Now, this is a callback to a very specific identifier of the Antichrist that we learned in earlier chapters. If you remember in Revelation chapter 13, it says that this beast came up from the sea and it had seven heads and ten horns. And we read there that one of those heads was fatally wounded. But then that fatal wound was healed some way. And if you remember in chapter 13, that phrase fatal wound in the original language means a life-terminating injury. So, so this, this antichrist and this government he leads, but specifically they're talking about this one world leader contextually, is going to experience some type of life-terminating injury. But in chapter 13 it says, but that fatal wound was healed and the beast came back to life, right? Now, we talked a lot about that back then, and I don't have time to go through it again, but, but that that moment is, is likely some type of, of miracle, miraculous healing that, that is performed by Satan and, and, and possibly allowed by God. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where God allows um, Satan to perform certain signs and miracles. And, 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 and this resurrection, this, this, this counterfeit resurrection of the Antichrist is, is brought on really because of mankind's persistent desire to believe the lies that Satan is peddling. And so, just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God allows the people who insist on believing the lie to see more of the lie and then thus be further uh, led into that false belief. Um, but again, it's not God forcing them or leading them into it. It's their choice. They want to believe the lie. And so it tells us here that this beast, it says, he was alive. Then he is not because he died. And then he comes again specifically now resurrected through some miraculous sign that, that Satan performs and now fully empowered directly by Satan. And the result then in chapter 13, we read that the whole world would be astonished. Wow, he came back to life, right? People have been telling us Jesus came back to life for 2,000 years, but I don't see no Jesus, but right here in front of us is this worldwide charismatic leader, and he died, and he came back, and they're just wowed by that, and then it results in, it tells us there, of them following the beast and worshiping the dragon and worshiping the beast. And we see that in Revelation 13, 8, where it says, all those who live on the earth will worship it. And this is referring to the beast that was and is not and is to come. And it says there in Revelation 13, 8, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. 
very similar language, and I believe describing the same event, the same moment as we're looking at here in Revelation 17, 8, right? So verse 9 of Revelation 17, it then says, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. This phrase is much like the uh, parallel phrase we also read in Revelation 13. If you remember in that chapter as we were talking about the mark of the beast, and John was describing to us what this mark of the beast is. He, he describes it in, in, in somewhat cryptic language, and it says there a very similar thing, that, that let the mind that has wisdom understand what this means. And there I mentioned that the idea of having wisdom then um, really, I think, and I believe is pointing to the idea of that, that the people living during the time of tribulation are going to understand what the mark of the beast is. We can speculate. We could go, it's a tattoo, it's a subdermal this, it's a, it's a chip. You know, we, we could speculate, uh, but we don't know for sure. But the people living during that time, it's going to be clear as day to them. They're going to understand what that mark is. They're going to understand how to determine it. And so when it's talking about here that the, this beast that was and is not and how, how people are going to be astonished by that, right? Because John was astonished and the angel said, why are you astonished? <laughs> this beast is going to die and come back to life. And people are going to be wowed by the miracle. And so, um, likely during this time, the reason people are going to be astonished and the reason some people are not going to be astonished is because some are going to believe in Jesus during this time and others are going to persist, persist in believing the lie. And so, therefore, the mind that has wisdom is the one that's going to be able to go, wait a second, this is not true, this is false, this is counterfeit. So, moving on in verse 9, the angel says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Well, thanks for clearing that up, angel. Right? The seven heads are seven mountains, and they're also kings. So, so what, what does he mean here? Um, and specifically, you'll notice the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and it's referring to that notorious prostitute from earlier in the chapter. So it's both. The seven heads symbolize or are representative of both seven mountains that the woman is sitting on and seven kings. Now, when it comes to seven mountains, there are some people who read this section and they are very quick to associate this beast and the seven heads and therefore its influence. And we're talking about one world religion. They're very quick to associate it to Rome because the city of Rome was historically called the city of seven hills, Right? And so some get really excited, and, and they say, you know, it, it, there's a clear connection because Rome represented the excess of political corruption and political power and false worship and persecution of believers, right? You go back in history, and Rome as a city and then as a city representing the empire reflected um, all of that, represented all of that. And then so then many go on to make a connection um, between Babylonian paganism and Roman Catholicism, because in Roman Catholicism, there's a worship of Mary, and, and so some people go, ah, the Catholic Church is going to be the, the head of the one world religion at the end of all things. Um, specifically, back in the late 90s, people got all excited because Pope John Paul II had a lot of tendencies towards unified ecumenical interreligious cooperation, and people were like, oh, he's going to lead the one world religion. Um, 
And then on top of that, when you look at the prophecies in the book of Daniel about this government during the end times, a lot of people refer to it as the revived Roman Empire because of the vision in Daniel chapter 2 with the statue and the feet, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, And then on top of that, Rome was the last world empire, world-controlling empire that led with a philosophy of we have a God for everybody, but not Jesus. Now, there's a couple objections to that. One, Rome was built on hills, not mountains. And the word here, when it says the seven heads are seven mountains, in the original language is a word that very specifically means mountain, not hill. Okay? Um, and then on top of that, Pope John Paul II passed in 2005, so he's not the head of one world anything at this point. And the woman represents the one world religion, not the beast. So those are a few objections to that interpretation. Um, but then on top of that, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, when we have this vision of the statue, it tells us that at the end of the vision, a stone flies from heaven, strikes the foot of the statue, destroys it all, and then that stone becomes a mountain, very specific Hebrew word, mountain. And we know that in that vision, it tells us that mountain represents a kingdom. It represents specifically the kingdom of God that is to come after the end of things at tribulation. So, the word mountain can biblically represent kingdoms and governments in general. And so since the seven heads both represent mountains and kings, right, the seven heads, it's better to see them as representing kingdoms and the seven leaders that lead those kingdoms, okay? So the woman is seen, however, sitting on all seven of these kingdoms. What is that a picture of? Well, since we know the woman is representative of this false religion that has its roots back in Babylonian uh, false worship and stuff, the idea is that this woman has had influence. The influence of false worship has permeated every single major world-influencing kingdom throughout history and will do so again during the tribulation period. So verse 10, he says, Five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. This further reinforces the interpretation of the mountains being kingdoms and the seven kings being leaders of those kingdoms because what we read here is a description of history. Five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. So remember, John is receiving this vision at the end of the first century. During that time, the world-controlling empire was the Roman Empire led by the emperor. And so prior to John's day, prior to the influence of the Roman Empire, there had been five major worldwide empires historically that, that effectively controlled the known world of their time, okay? Those five empires started with the Egyptian dynasties. And then you had the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, five. And these five kingdoms and the leaders of those five kingdoms, by John's time receiving this vision, had already fallen. Then he says one is, the sixth. Well, of course one is, the then living Roman Empire, emperor leading the Roman Empire. That empire is. So five had fallen, one is, and again, that empire had had huge control. John had been exiled to Patmos by the Roman government. But then he says, the other has not yet come. This is the seventh king, the seventh 
kingdom or mountain. And in John's time, this seventh kingdom had not yet come. Rome was the one that is, but the seventh had not yet come, and it hasn't come in our day either. Because if we look through history since the Roman Empire, there has not been one single world-controlling empire like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. Or, there hasn't been. After the Roman Empire fell, the whole world started dividing up into localized governments. There hasn't been an empire like these previous ones since, but Daniel speaks of this seventh kingdom and the seventh king, and we get the idea that this is called the revived Roman Empire led by the beast, led by the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Just as a quick recap, this comes from Daniel chapter 2. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was in Babylon with his people. They were captives there. The king of Babylon at the time was a man named Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a dream, a really strange dream. And in this dream, it was a statue that had a head of gold, and it had a chest and arms of silver. Its abdomen and its thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were made of iron and clay. And in that dream, he saw that this stone came out of heaven and it struck the feet. It struck the base of that statue and the whole thing just collapsed. And then that stone became a mountain as we talked about, representing a kingdom that comes after all of this. And so Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel after all his guys failed miserably to interpret the dream and said, Daniel, can you tell me what this dream means? And Daniel's like, yeah, bro. I, he didn't say bro, but that's modern language. He said, I'll tell you what you saw. What you saw was the kingdoms of the earth in succession from the present time all the way through the end of time. And so you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of Babylon, the head of gold. But after Babylon falls, another empire will rise led by another king. And then that was the chest of silver and so on and so forth. But all of that will go in succession until we get to these legs of iron, which represented historically the Roman Empire, the empire that was as John is receiving this vision. And then after that empire falls, subsequent to that will be an empire of iron and clay with ten toes, right? Now, in Daniel's vision, that empire that comes after the legs of iron, after the, the, the iron strength of the Roman Empire that seventh kingdom is going to be a mix of iron and clay. So it's going to be Roman-like. It's going to be Roman-esque, but different. And that's why people refer to it as a revived Roman Empire. But the ten toes in that particular vision we learn elsewhere in Daniel represent ten smaller kingdoms and governments that will work together in like a coalition, if you will, during the end times to form one larger worldwide government, but made up of these 10 individual kingdoms. And that larger government will control the world of its time, something we haven't yet seen since the fall of Rome to our present day, so it's still yet future. But then as we see in that vision in Daniel 2, the whole thing is ultimately destroyed by this stone that comes from heaven and then becomes a mountain representing God's kingdom. Now, you might go, wait a second, that's only five kingdoms in the statue. There's seven heads on the beast. What, how do we reconcile that? Well, remember, Daniel's vision was from his present time, the Babylonian kingdom, through the end of time. 
behind him, the Assyrian Empire had already happened, number six, and the Egyptian Empire had already come and gone, number seven. So the conclusion of Daniel's vision here is although the first Roman Empire fell, it's going to resume in some way in the future as a seventh kingdom. You guys tracking with me here? Awesome. All right. Verse 10. Then it says, when he comes, remember mountains and kings represent kingdoms and leaders, he must remain for only a little while. So now we're looking at the king of the seventh kingdom representing the whole government he leads. And so when he comes is referring to the Antichrist, the seventh king, the beast, and the seventh empire, the seventh government or the seventh mountain that he leads that the woman then sits on and has influence over. Because remember, it said the woman is sitting on the seven heads or the seven mountains. Now look in verse 11. That's going to be clarified in verse 12. We'll get there. So the beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. You can understand why people get a headache trying to study Revelation, okay? Um, the Antichrist as the seventh king over the seventh kingdom has reign over that government. So it's a coalition of, coalition of ten governments, but the Antichrist is leading it, if you will. He's kind of the, the CEO of it. And he has reign over that for the first three and a half years of tribulation. He has rulership over that seventh kingdom. But then it says the seventh is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven. A very strange phrase. Okay, so let me try and break this down for you. The Antichrist is one of the seven kings leading one of the seven kingdoms. Okay? So in the beginning of the tribulation period, right around there, there's this ten government, this ten region, this ten nation governmental entity that, that, that forms together, and then this one man kind of rises to the top to lead the whole thing. But it's still led almost in a, um, like, uh, we're, all, we're all peers. Yeah, he's the CEO, but we all work together, right? And it's this government that then brings alleged peace to the world, and that's the whole ten toes of Daniel and, and all this stuff. But the beast that was and is not meaning the beast that will suffer a fatal wound at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the beast who was and is not and will come again, right? He will die and he will be resurrected somehow. And when he dies as the seventh king, his seventh kingdom, his allegedly peaceful government, the government that he leads, that one world government, will effectively cease. But not like the previous governments or the previous uh, entities. Instead, that seventh kingdom and the seventh king will change. It'll come back. It'll resurge into something radically different, something far more malevolent, something far more outwardly evil and wicked, as we've seen in our previous studies of Revelation. Because at that midpoint, as the Antichrist is killed and then this miracle brings him back to life, everybody goes, wow. He's God, not Buddha. He's God, not Allah. He's God, not fill in the blank. And then he goes, yes, I am, and I demand you worship me. And as we're going to see in uh, subsequent verses here, then these ten nations that are part of this one world government, they give all their power to him. They step aside. They say, you're in complete, absolute control, bro. 
And that's when all hell literally breaks loose. So the seventh king, the beast, the Antichrist, will itself become an eighth king. So he's the seventh king during the first three and a half years. He dies, he's resurrected. He then becomes effectively an eighth king during the last three and a half years of tribulation. But it's during that last three and a half years where he becomes an absolute tyrant, empowered directly by Satan himself during what is known as the Great Tribulation Period. And that's, as I said, when things get bad. That's when the mark of beast comes on the scene. That's when the image of the beast is created. That's where they say, you worship the image or you will be killed. That's when the persecution against the Jewish people and all who would believe in Jesus Christ gets really out of control and really bad. Verse 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So here we get to the interpretation of the ten horns. They are ten kings in line with Daniel's prophecies, the ten toes and other places in Daniel. But they don't exist during John's time. They have not yet received a kingdom. They don't exist during John's time while he was receiving this vision, but they will exist during the tribulation period. And then it says they will receive authority as kings with the beast. This is this coalition, right, for one hour. Now people go, what does one hour mean? Well, it means a very short period of time in the original language, okay? It's not necessarily saying 60 minutes. Some do interpret it that way, but, but when I looked up the, the original word in the Greek, it's simply a word that refers to a very short period of time. We've all done that, right? I'll call you back in five minutes. Do we mean five minutes or do we mean I'm going to call you back pretty shortly, right? So we, we get the idea there. Verse 13, speaking of these ten horns and these ten kings, these have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So the purpose of these ten nations that are a part of this coalition is ultimately not to rule as equals with the Antichrist, which is how it works during the first three and a half years of tribulation, but ultimately their purpose is to throw all of their authority and all their power, all their rulership, everything they have as leaders of these, these nations or areas or however you want to look at that, they throw it all behind the beast. That word power means controlling influence, means strength, it means force. And then authority means their domain or sphere of influence. So the idea is that they have certain areas of the earth that they're leading and they're in control over. And yeah, they assent to the Antichrist as kind of the CEO over everything, but they have authority. Well, they give all that up at the midpoint. They give it all to the beast. So everything that they have governance and control over is given and yielded, handed over to the beast, who then will exercise sole, complete dominance globally. And that is exactly what we see after the midpoint of tribulation and we've looked at in previous studies where we get the enforced worship of the beast, where we get the enforced worship with death as a penalty, where the mark comes onto the scene that's saying, I have allegiance to the beast and you can't buy and sell without it, and you can't work without it, and it gets real, real bad. And this is all what ramps up to a very full, overt, intentional public effect. And this effect is simply the out outward, overt, public persecution of the Jews and all believers in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. These, speaking of the ten nations and the beast, will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. 
So what we've been looking at is kind of like a rapid overview of the progression of history all the way through the end time scenario, right? Through all the persecution, all the oppression, all the way up to the outright slaughter of those who believe in Jesus, bringing us all the way up to the battle of Armageddon. Ultimately, to the return of Jesus Christ, who returns with his people, and the defeat of the Antichrist, who is the final earthly king, representing Satan himself, ultimately defeated by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, before we move on, you might say, well, what about the notorious prostitute, right? That's what I thought this chapter was about, right? We've been talking about the beast. What about this one world religious system that is initially propped up and supported, right? We see her sitting on the beast. That means it's supporting her. It's propping her up. What, what about this one world religious system that is, that is supported and endorsed by the Antichrist? And, and what about the one world government and all that? How does that all work? What happens to her? Well, look at verse 15. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And that's basically speaking about the influence she has over the world. The ten horns you saw in the beast will hate the prostitute. They will hate the effect religion has on people. They will hate the fact that it's like, oh, everybody, you can, you can worship however you want. We all get along in a big spiritual hug. They're going to hate that. And they will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this plan by having one purpose, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So what we see is Babylon embodied as the religious system of the end times will have significant influence over the people of the earth for a time. Remember, we just saw her. She's been seated and had that influence over all the major world-affecting empires going all the way back through history, right? False worship, pagan religion has had influence over all of the governments of history. And during the tribulation, all the different religions that have sprung up over time will somehow be united. I'm not sure. But they will be united, brought under one banner in the governing authorities of the earth at that time including the beast, initially support her, initially endorse it. They support her efforts to bring peace amongst the warring religions, right? Even the Antichrist himself, it tells us in Daniel that he ratifies a peace treaty with Israel. He somehow manages to get the, the Jews and the, and the Arabs in Israel to, to, to be at peace, to work together which allows the Jewish temple to be rebuilt on the mount right next to, I believe, the Dome of the Rock. So it's like, you guys can both worship here. Stop blowing each other up. Just get along, right? It all works out. The Antichrist is a part of that. And what a wonderful picture of what mankind wants religion to be, right? Can't we all just get along? We could all come to God our own way. And we're going to see that during the end times. But incidentally, this method of taking control isn't new. If you study histories, you see regimes come into an area. What they'll commonly do is make friends with all the religious leaders. They'll endorse the religious leaders. They'll even raise up those religious leaders into positions of authority until those religions become so entrenched into the culture. And then the government starts restricting the religious freedoms of those religious groups. It happened with Hitler. It happened in the Soviet bloc. It's going to happen through the end. But then this 
wonderful, peacemaking, inclusive, tolerant leader, the Antichrist, will be killed somehow, miraculously come back to life and astonishing the world, and the world will then be forced to abandon all of their individual iterations of faith. Because it'll be, no, you must worship the beast and nothing else. Many will do so easily. And I see that because you'll notice the woman sits on the seven mountains, but not the eight. She sat on the seven mountains, not the eight. This one world religion has no place in the final three and a half years of tribulation because it's worship of Satan and Satan alone. So the governments hated her, it says. You know, we, we, we look at all this stuff that's happening and we go, what happens to the notorious prostitute? What happens to religious Babylon? What happens to this one world religious system during the end times? Well, the governments hated her all along. And so at the, end point, at the midpoint, as the Antichrist is killed and comes back to life and commits the abomination of desolation in the Jewish temple, it says all those 10 kings will give all their power and authority to the Antichrist, to the beast, and thus they will all war against all the religions, they will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. And thus we see that the false religious system of the world will be struck down. It'll be destroyed and replaced with a worldwide enforced worship of the beast. Now, it tells us there that this all happens according to God's will. It all happens to God according to God's purposes. It's been predicted by God's prophets, right? We've been studying a lot of that through the Old Testament. And what does that tell us is that false religions, all of them, false worship, it's all going to be judged by God himself at the end times as he lets the beast and this woman fight and lets the beast devour her, destroy her, it says. Every false religion, every man-centric antichrist philosophy, every humanistic effort to, to connect to the divine without submitting, without yielding to the one true creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, every single one are ultimately precursors for and point to worship of the one who hates God with everything he is. They all point to worship of Satan. They all point to him who is the ultimate expression of the worship of self in the place of the worship of God Almighty. And so it ends here on verse 18, and the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. You go, what? Is she a notorious prostitute? Is she a city? Right? All these pictures and images, they kind of weave in and out of each other and back and forth. But in John's day, there was no doubt which city on the earth had royal power over the kings of the earth. It was Rome, right? Rome was the political power, the economic religious center of the world at that time. And so when you see this phrase royal power, it simply means great power, great influence, or great control. But as we've talked about, Babylon, the concept of Babylon refers to many things. It refers to an actual city. It refers to an actual empire in the past. It refers to an ideology and an attitude. It refers to everything that is against God. And as a concept and an ideology and a world-spanning system of thinking and belief, Babylon, this woman, has always been the great city that had royal power over the kings of the earth. Because we saw it in Egypt, we saw it in Assyria, we saw it in Babylon, we saw it in the Medo-Persian Empire, we saw it in the Greek empire. We saw it in the Roman empire. The question for us today is, does it have royal power over you? That's the question. Am I a citizen of the world or am I a citizen of heaven? 
Do I live like it? Do I behave like it? You know, Rome may have been the personification of Babylon in its time. The personification of a world system and rebellion against God in John's day, but today, idolatry is just as strong. It's a little bit more dispersed. It's a little bit more subtle, right? We don't necessarily um, have a society where we have temples in every city to the multiple, multiple different gods and, 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 and idolatry. It, it, today, it's clothed in secular terms. It's not necessarily enshrined in statues or temples per se, but you don't have to drive very far through any city to see the many places of worship that worship gods that aren't Jesus Christ. And then we see that idolatry is clothed also in money and power and reputation and personal feelings and priorities and self and the attitude, the attitudes that stand against God. Some might say the Babylon of today goes by a much different name. It's called wokeism. My feelings, my needs, priority above God. I don't care what God says. I will live how I want. I don't care what God commands me to do. I'll go to a church that allows me to live however I want to so I could say I'm a Christian, but live in disobedience to the Almighty. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. And he is the only thing that sets us free from the disease of self. So today, we're going to celebrate with some members of our Christian family that are professing that they have been set free and saved by Jesus Christ. That they're making a public declaration that they've been redeemed from the sin of self. And what they're doing is making a public profession of the truth that Jesus Christ has changed their life. And they're doing that through the act of baptism here. And so, real quick, baptism is a public profession of faith. Here at Hosanna, um, we baptize kids as long as those minors, those children can express an understanding of, of salvation and, and why they're getting baptized. You know, um, we, we do baby dedications. We don't baptize babies, but we do dedications as parents want to dedicate them to God. And so we have some minors getting baptized today, and we'll do that as long as they can acknowledge this is why I'm getting baptized. I understand who Jesus is. I understand that I put my faith in him. And then, of course, adults, right? We're going to ask you the same thing. But the idea is that there's this public profession of what God has already done in your heart. So this is how it's going to work today. For those of you getting baptized today, okay, those of you that signed up, and if you didn't sign up, we got stuff for you too. But in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward, Okay, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seats and come forward, and you're going to come down the aisle, and you're going to go out the side of the um, sanctuary right here, up the stairs to the back where you can get changed for the baptism. Okay, if you bought, brought clothes to change into, we have changing booths back there for privacy, um, as well as cubbies to hold your personal items, and we have staff back there that is watching everything so nothing gets stolen. But when you're changed... I want you to come back out front and line up against the wall, right, this white wall right here, just line up right there uh, for your baptism. Now, myself, I'm going to go get changed as well. Me and Pastor Rick will be inside the baptismal, and we will call you into the baptismal one at a time. We will have one of our elders on the outside here to make sure you get over the stairs and stuff, okay? And then we will baptize you. After you are baptized, you'll just exit the baptismal. We'll hand you a towel so you can dry off and wrap yourself with and then just proceed to the back into the changing booth where you can change back into your clothes. 
and then come back outside and continue to worship with us as we're completing the baptisms. Now, during the entire baptism team, our worship team will be on stage leading us here in worship, and so I encourage all of you, just praise God as we celebrate the profession of faith that our brothers and sisters are making. Now, as I said, if you didn't sign up for the baptism today, but God has put it on your heart, I'm saved, and I've never made that public profession of faith. Come forward to get baptized. We have shorts you can change into. We have shirts you can change into. We have towels for you. We got you covered. Now, for friends and family of those getting baptized, we encourage you to come up to the front if you want to take pictures or take video of any of this. We are live streaming this because we do have family and friends that aren't here that want to watch their loved ones get baptized. So if you're like kind of like in the middle of the building here, please stay seated, okay? <laughs> or come up here if you want to stand up and worship, all right? But we're just asking you not to block the camera so family and friends could, could see and witness their loved ones getting baptized. And then after everybody getting baptized is baptized, um, our worship leaders will close out the service for prayer, and then we'll have a final song of worship. And so um, I am very blessed to do this with you guys, to be a part of this. And so right now, if you signed up to get baptized, if you didn't sign up to get baptized, please stand up. Please stand up and come on forward. See, our worship team is going ahead of you just in case you're nervous. So come forward with your stuff. If you're getting baptized, you're going to follow them out the side and go into the changing booths, and we will be ready back there to help you get ready for the baptism. And while our worship team is getting on stage, let's pray and let's worship. And I know it's late, guys. I tried to get through it as fast as I could. If you have to leave, you have to leave. That's okay. But I encourage you guys to stay as long as you can to celebrate with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, oh, God, the future is difficult to look at. But Lord, we know that as we've been studying this revelation of Jesus Christ, it's teaching us about you and who you are. And Lord, specifically through our last few studies, we have been learning how you feel about idolatry, how you feel about false worship, how, how you feel about those things that draw our attention, our heart, away from you. And God, it's not a pretty picture. Lord, we know that today you are patient as we see false religions all around us and we see the religion of self and really what is becoming the religion of wokeism permeating our cultures. And God, we know you're going to judge it, but you're being patient now that people will get saved. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that people would come to know you, to see the truth of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of the falsehood that's out there. I pray, God, you use us as your people to lead those that don't know you to the truth, that, God, we would be ready when you come for the church. But, God, we're so excited to celebrate today with our brothers and sisters getting baptized, Lord, because they have come to know you. They are saved. And, God, that is awesome. We want to praise you for that now. We want to worship you for how just glorious you are. So, God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this study. Thank you for these in our family we get to celebrate with today. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.